the whole of August, Text Talks is celebrating Women's Month with our good friends, Tom's, the only music store. Tom's have generously given us the M Audio Vocal Studio Pro Kit to give away in the month of August. I'm actually using it to record this right now. The kit includes studio quality headphones and a condenser microphone that all plugs into their signature USB audio interface. Perfect for getting studio quality audio right at home. We want you, the listener, to nominate an exceptional lady that you think would benefit the most from this opportunity. Simply head over to our pinned post on social channels and tag the woman who you think deserves this gift. And make sure you follow Text Talks for all our exciting Women's Month episodes. That's text with a double X. Also, if you're thinking about picking up an instrument for the first time or you're looking to upgrade, just head on over to any one of the several Tom stores around the country where their epic staff are ready and waiting to say, how's it? Welcome to a special episode of Tex Talks, The Look Back Season 2. I am Tex, and today I'll be looking back at some of my favorite moments from Season 2 and reveal what went into the recording of each episode. So if you don't already know by now, allow me to introduce myself again. I am Tekla, and I have been a part of the South African music industry for just over 10 years, namely as a journalist and an editor and an event curator and a freelance streaming consultant. When you work for yourself, you do whatever pays the bills pretty much, which is why I run 50 things at the same time. So I started my blog, Text in the City, about 10 years ago. And over time, it's grown to become a fully-fledged music website that spotlights, well, I think it spotlights the best underground and unsigned musicians in South Africa today. And Text Talks was born when my now producer, Jonathan Ings, and I got together for a casual day drinking session, and now I just can't get rid of him. So obviously, this is a joke. Not really. Um, But moving swiftly along, just like Text in the City, the aim behind Text Talks is to spotlight the multiple genres that make Africa such a rich musical melting pot. And while season one exceeded all of our expectations, especially when we became the number one music podcast on Apple Podcasts for several weeks running, I really feel like we raised the bar to meet your expectations with season two. And we've actually just realized that we're part of three feature campaigns currently running on Apple Podcasts. And we just wanted to send a shout out to all of the guests who generously gave us the use of their music to bring each podcast to life. We heart you. So in the spirit of a good recap, I think that now we should look back. So I'm christening this season the season of first because majority of the artists on this lineup I have never interviewed before. So this gave me a great opportunity to really dig and dive deep into the artist's origins and growth. And I think that this podcast with Questa was so rich and so packed full of info that it stands out to me probably as like one of the best interviews I've ever done. Also, his voice is so sexy. Oh, my God. And uh, I think my favorite moment from our talk was when Questa mentions how he brought Wale down to his hood to see and experience where he's from. And Wale's reaction was nothing like he expected it to be. Let's take a listen. I think music aside, one of the things that stands out uh, to me 
are your music videos, specifically the yeah. one that you did with Wale. Like Spirit is so yeah. it it's so special because you know you went back to where you grew up, um, yeah. where your gogo still lives, and like she's in the yeah. video. Um, what was that experience like? Getting to give Wale a firsthand experience of who and what that song represents, right there. Yeah. Um, What's crazy is that in my head, right, this is in my head and how I'd imagined it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to show you. I'm, I'm talking to Wale, like he lands, and, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to show you something else, you know, and all of that, i got a surprise for you. And and to tell you the truth, he was he was at home. He was just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I see, I see. You know, he saw the shags, he's seeing everything, but he's not really shocked. And then it, it dawned on me, and I've always known it, and I knew it. It was always there, something to know. But I'm like, oh yeah, you're from Nigeria, bro. You know and understand these. He had seen sort of the, what what it's like on the other end of things, you know. Um, but and so that burst my bubble a little bit. I was like, oh, okay, you know it. I right, cool, you know. But obviously, there's little small little cultural differences that that, that were interesting to him. Uh, but what the effect it had. That, that that hit me the most was on everybody else that was around, you know, um, um, somebody that was, that might have just been driving by, you know, or just walking by or was shooting. Because to tell you the truth, that video, um, the plan was not to, because there's some point where there's a big crowd of people and things like that. That was never mm. part of the plan in the video at all, you know. Um, it was supposed what? to be. the it, it, it was not part of the plan at all, not a single bit, you know. Um, we, Everyone's we, like, Quest is coming. Bringing Wally, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I think as soon as soon as they it, it, it hit and dawned on people that there's a well, I mean, I'm from there, so I, I I frequent the place, and yes, you do get an appreciation of a picture or, or five or whatever, you know, and that's cool. But I think when it dawned on people that a Wale is here, you know, whatever Wale represents to them in their head and heart, um, uh, that's when it became a big thing. And 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 I remember talking to um, just. A, a guy I didn't know also was just there in the video, and and they were just literally. Uh, I was I was in the boat with Wale, and 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 they were just, bro, you don't understand what this means to these people, you know, like just, just the idea that you are one of them, and and the possibilities that you've kind of you've kind of planted in their heads, you know, that the the amount of things that are possible, you know, um, it's one thing to just be a guy rapping, right, and you brought a whole Wale, you know, um, to to a guy that might have just been waking up to go buy bread mm. and run into Wale shooting a video and you know right opposite his house you know is is really just is 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 bringing the world to where we are so it kind of plants the idea of we 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 can bring the world to where we are we are good enough you know we shouldn't be afraid of 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 how the world will accept us because of where we come from and things like that and he was just going on about that and 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 I figured it did more because I just wanted to, um, like, that's why I started with this. I just really wanted to, you know, knock Wale off his socks about showing him the hood, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality was that it did much more than that. It was it, what it meant to everybody else that was that was there just ended up making it a crowd in the video or that, that, that it heard about it or that saw it or that drove past it was like, man, we can do anything we want, really, you know. Uh, we can do anything we want and we can take it to whatever level we want, depending on how, obviously, how hard and how determined, you know. None of this actually matters. This is not a prison of any sort, mm. you know. Um, this is not a confinement, you know. I can, the world, there's, there's a big world out there and things like that. And and I felt like that, that was, that was, that wasn't even the plan. 
tell you the truth, you know, um, it wasn't that deep, you know. Uh, I just wanted to 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 be Gallian gangster, you know, like yeah, let me show you like where that. I'm from. In another first for season two, I interviewed Pierre Chria from Diablos Fantastis, and him and I have been bumping into each other on the scene for years. So again, it was a great opportunity to get to know him, but also to like kick back and be a bit nostalgic because Hevel's first album played such a huge part in my varsity days. And I have such fun memories of getting into music journalism and getting into the scene back then with my friend Alice Ings, who I just remembered is actually a cousin of my dear producer, Jonathan Ings. But wait, I'm getting, I'm getting sidetracked. Where were we? Oh, Pierre. So my favorite moment from this talk was when Pierre talks about why Leah, which is the ballad of their debut album, still resonates so deeply with fans even 10 years later. Let's take a listen. I, I also thought that including the live version of Leah from the Francois and Frinda show in Pretoria last year on 2021 was very smart because that was one of the standout moments from the show. It was crazy, like how people were just screaming every lyric back at you. Um, and it comes across really, really well in the in the live version that, um, you know, how amped everybody was. What do you think it is about that song specifically that still resonates with people like 10 years later? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. I, I was speaking to somebody else actually about how that song was written. And that, that was literally, I think, the only song ever where I wrote most of it in like 45, maybe an hour. Uh, just kind of late at night, picked up the guitar and it just kind of flowed out. But I think it's the... It's a sense of urgency, kind of, or the sense of loss. I think people really relate with that feeling. You know, everybody's felt it. Everybody's like lost something and can't get it back. And I, I think that's what that song actually achieves in conveying. Um, and that's something that people really, I don't know, can channel. And I think that's what that's what makes music amazing. You know, it's it's not just cathartic for the artist who creates it. It it becomes something else eventually when it you know gets out there. Um, so I, I think that's what's happened there. But with it being included on the album, Marinas, who who engineers that show and and who's a very good friend of all of us and and great sound engineer, I wasn't even sure if that show was recorded to be honest. And I kind of asked Franny, and he said, "You think so?" And <laughs> I just kind of, for some random reason, while we were touring at the end of last year, I was like, that was a pretty cool performance with Johnny on the piano, and it like really felt great mm -hmm. on the night. Um, and I just texted him, I was like, if you by any chance recorded that, it would be amazing if you could mix it to include as a bonus track. And he was very like radio silence and working and whatever. And like right before the record was done, he was like, I actually found the hard drive and. I'm going to mix it for you. Don't worry about it. And, you know, you got it out. What a legend. <laughs> Shout out, Marinas. That's, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful way to end off 2021. 
Yet another first for season two, and oh my god, I love this man so much. I don't even know where to start with looking back at this episode with Early B, because it was like talking to an old homie, and he's so funny, and I think I just laughed through the entire thing. But what we did for a few of the interviews we recorded for season two was I'd record off my M-Audio 192 for Vocal Studio Pro, definitely not plugging a product there, and I would WhatsApp call the person so that I could see them. And being able to see early was the best thing because he's so animated when he talks, which also didn't help me laughing the entire time. And I, I think my favorite moment was when he he talks about what it means to him, but also to everybody else back home uh, in his hometown of PE, to be the first Afrikaans rapper to be signed to Universal Music. Let's take a listen. So so fast forward to 2017, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you make history by becoming the first Afrikaans rapper to sign mm-hmm. with Universal Music Group, which, I mean, really, that's a huge achievement. Yeah. Like, what what has the signing, because it's been like three years now, what has yeah, the yeah. signing and working with a larger team essentially done for your for your career? Because I know, I, I think I read somewhere that you said that it's been like one of the single biggest achievements so far. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually, it made it so much easier because Back in the day, I remember earlier than 2017, and I'm just going to talk about performances now because most of most of our monies came from performances and things, you know. So um, we, would, we would apply for festivals that I'm performing at now. Like they would call before before the time now to, for me to perform at their festivals. But we would apply, like I know religiously, I would spam them like, look, Look at this. Just check this out. You know, you know what I'm saying. And oh, we would never get... This is what I do. You <laughs> like it? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Before that, she also did it So, so what happened was, um, we never, we never got that shot. You know, and um, working with Universal, it's it's also a company that 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 holds weight, man. You know, so for them to actually say, look, we have early beer or something, they open their doors. So doors get opened easier. Um, Obviously, signing to a label, marketing-wise, your 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 platform is so much bigger. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they put you on such a such, okay. It's easier now, but back then it was it was like yeah, it was a mission. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. um, for me, I, I must say like it, it meant a lot for 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 a lot of cats here in PE as well, hip hop guys. Um, just to just just for us to also check like look, uh, international labels looking at us, bra. Afrikaans rappers, you know what I'm saying? You need dull. And I'm I'm also honored to say last year was the first time. And look, a lot of people look at labels like different ways, you know. People some people would be like, oh no, I don't want to mix with labels. Some people are for for the thing. But mm. um for the first time last year, I was speaking about Kaka and Car. Um, we used to have it every year. Like Arjim and I used to perform at Kaka. Our very first time we went to Kaka and Car for the Rimclet show. They had to cancel it because it was too full. For the young kids, like they were watching for the young kids in front, it might cause a stampede. So they cancelled the first one. We made so much noise, but there was no, there was no doors opening for us. And last year, actually, the year after I signed with Universal, um, I know Sony came, Universal came, and some other indies, indies also came to come check out the other um, hip hop artists. So it was almost like you know what, now I for whoever wants to go that way, dude. I brought the people here for us, you know, so 
I, yeah. It, it meant a lot for me, like also just yeah, helping the next person also to get to that next level. So we had initially scheduled Jules from Good Luck to be on Text Talk Season 1. But when she rocked up at the STFD studio, she had quite a rough day. So I suggested to her that we postpone until she was in a better headspace. And I'm very, very happy with the way things worked out because we got to unpack a lot of things that I don't think we would have been able to in season one. Like the reason that she'd had a rough day was because Chucky had decided that he was going to leave the band. So we got to talk about her feelings around that. But My favorite moment was when she talks about how in lockdown, there's been this trend in streaming that's cropped up where people have gone back to listening to their older catalog in a bit of an unexpected move. Let's take a listen. So I think that there is definitely, um, the live scene has definitely helped make the genre of electronic and EDM and hip hop more popular. But I also think that there is a sway as well to a little bit more. And I I hope it keeps going this route because, you know, at the moment what we've seen is a a big die-off on um, when it's been the pandemic. There's been a massive die-off on new music uh, listenership, like 30% drop uh, to newer pop releases that have been happening and a huge increase on older songs and more iconic songs. Everyone's been feeling very nostalgic and have been wanting Mm -hmm. to pull out the songs that have got the messages you know, that they that they really yearn to hear. And I think, I hope, that the new wave of music post-pandemic coming out of it will be a combination of a newer sound with a, like a nostalgic legacy, a nostalgic way of writing and translating a story into a pop format, you know. That's my hope anyway, because that's what I love to do and that's what I love to listen to as well. Uh, that's really, really interesting what you said now about um, the drop-off in listenership with new music. I had no idea about that. But it makes sense with people wanting to connect to, like you said, people want, feeling nostalgic, mm. but wanting to connect to like happier times, you know, when we could bry yeah. and, yeah, and exactly. drink with each other, sit but in the it's, sun. But it's catalog. It's old music, like the John Mayers and the Stings and the Beatles and all this really old music has, been, has seen a massive resurgence, resurgence in the last six to eight weeks. It's very interesting, but it goes to show you that kind of music people will go and fall back on when times are tough, you know? So we're halfway through our look back, and I honestly can't believe that so much has happened over the last two months. But I need to get real for a second. The process of recording season two has not been without its ups and downs. And if it wasn't for Jono and Matthew and Al, who are all in Cape Town keeping me sane, while I was freezing my butt off in my apartment in Joburg, I probably would have lost my mind, and I very nearly did. But then alcohol sales came back for like a week, so I was fine. But yes, between my team and Tom's, we had to battle being scattered all over the country and substandard internet connections and load shedding, oh my God, and the fucking hardy dars in Craig Hall. (laughs) And through all of it, our gear from Tom's never let us down. And I just need to send a special shout out to the whole team because while it's my voice that you hear, there are cogs turning behind the scenes like you have absolutely no idea. But let's return to our look back. So this next episode with Gulo de Song, I think we rescheduled it like five times because he was moving around a lot. And clearly he's a very, very difficult dude to pin down. But eventually when I did and I interviewed him, I realized that that's just his nature. Like the guy is a born traveler. And I really don't think that Gulo has stayed put for longer than like a few days in his whole life. 
But our talk was also another first for me. And my, my favorite moment by far was when we shared our impressions of the crazy island party paradise of Ibiza. Let's take a listen. Now, uh, yeah. describe a typical day in the life of Tulo during your residency in Ibiza. Like, are you working and playing? Are you getting any sleep? Because I went to Ibiza and I can tell you that I got, if I got 12 hours of sleep that whole week I was there, it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there is no sleep in Ibiza. If, you go, if you're going to Ibiza to sleep, um, I don't want to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> you're in the wrong place. Uh, <laughs> yeah, then then you you in the wrong you in the wrong place. I mean, it's a very vibrant space, um, very very vibrant space. I mean, most of the time when when I land on the island, I'm super tired from somewhere else, um, or even just from home. You know, it's a it's, it's a long trip. You know, I'd probably take a Joburg to Doha and 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 Doha, Barcelona, Barcelona, Ibiza. Oh so you take gosh, like three, three, three flights, you know, to, to, to get to the island on time. <laughs> so you, you usually, um, quite exhausted, um, um, physically that is. Um, but as soon as you, you land and you engage with the people, you know, you, you check in at the hotel, uh, you join the party. All of a sudden, you know, it's, it's like a new you has been born right there. You know, <laughs> you just get this energy again. You are, you are ready to roll. You are ready to party. That, that's how that's how amazing the island is. Um, it, it's got this like crazy energy, man. Um, and and, and it, it's, it's 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 good time. You know. I think it's very clear to me that, you know, you embrace the moving around. You thrive with meeting new people and going to new places. Yeah. How yeah. are you channeling all of that energy now in lockdown? Um, well, first of all, it doesn't exist right now. <laughs> so Simple answer. <laughs> so it, 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 it's, it, it just... It, you, you gotta embrace that. You know, you gotta embrace the, 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 the new normal. Um, so to speak, I've been here. I've been hearing that term um, a lot, um, a lot lately. Um, but it's it's also you know there there is a positive side you know um, to what to to what is happening because you you, you get to quiet yourself. Um, you you get less engagement with people and the public. Um, you you listen to yourself more. You, you get to understand your body a little more as well. So this was the first episode that we recorded for season two. And I know I've been gushing a lot about Karen on social media lately. If you follow me, you'll definitely know. But this woman is a queen. And what a lot of people don't really know is that she's actually given me a bunch of opportunities in the music industry over the last few years that I otherwise would not have had. So to get the opportunity to interview her on a scale like this was very, very special for me. And everyone's favorite moment from this podcast is when Karen flips the script and starts interviewing me. And I actually like don't even realize it, but that's not my favorite moment. Mine is when she takes Maslow's hierarchy of needs and she flips it to explain the music industry because it's funny and it's insightful and we should definitely take a listen. I had no idea that you'd done a TED talk and I watched it and it was so great because you you use Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you turned it, it was so cool. And you turned it into um, like explaining the different types of musicians. So uh, for, 
everybody who hasn't listened to your TED Talk, I'll, I'll break it down very quickly if I can remember. So level one, you had the classical musician who was basically like mm-hmm. trained their whole life and is technically a genius. Uh, yes. Level two, you had the jazz musician who's technically brilliant but focuses more on like improv. Uh, level three, you had the musician who can play an instrument and sing, but it's less about being the best and more about like the chiers. Yeah, uh, like, like the most musos that, that yeah. Yeah. And then Muso, Muso. level two, <laughs> level two is my favorite. Oh no, level four was the singer who essentially performs with backtracks. And then I think you mentioned Kurt Darren, which made me laugh anyway. And then yeah, oh, the, artists, the artists, the artists, they don't write their own <laughs> They don't, don't write their own music necessarily, and they don't play an instrument, and they don't sometimes don't don't even need a band, mm. like uh, Darren or Seal. Mm. You know, he played South Africa without a band. Um, but yeah, and then at the very bottom the was DJs. the DJ. Mm-hmm. But they're not actually in the hierarchy. They think they are. They're the reserves. They're on the bench, <laughs> but they see themselves as musicians. <laughs> they can't play an instrument. They can't oh write God. a song. I they, can't they, wait. They, Bass play, faders, and that's it. There's no performance aspect. They produce something at home and then they press play when they do it live. But, and then you flip it in terms of who gets paid the most. And then, then the hierarchy changes. Suddenly, when people's old, they put number one. They're saliva. <laughs> yeah. 2013, three years, David Goethe was number one. On all the, 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 it's the top, Avicii, all those guys. It's just, DJs make the most money, have the biggest hits. Then the kind of Christina Aguilera, um, you know, okay, like people like Billie Eilish have changed that. Mm-hmm. She can play instruments and write her own songs. But for a long time it was whatever, Jennifer Lopez who's actually a dancer or Madonna who's actually a dancer but just sings and other people construct, you know. And then it's musos, bands, you know, Foo Fighters. So we're in the middle, as we play music, and then and then the jazz people make very little money, even though they are incredible and better than all these other people. Mm. But the people who make the least money, of course, the people who've devoted their entire lives to an instrument, your entire life playing the bassoon, but you make 8,000 rand a month at Cape Philharmonic Orchestra. Completely unfair. Life is not fair, kids. It's not. Text Talk's first international guest was Passenger, and I don't think I will ever get tired of saying that. My producer, Jono, pulled a big fluffy white rabbit out of his hat with this booking, and even though this podcast is short, it's packed so full of anecdotes because Passenger is an incredible storyteller. And my favorite moment, hands down, was when I questioned him about his reaction to how much South Africans adore him. Let's take a listen. One of the things that I notice about a South African audience is they don't just know a let her go or mm. a heart's on fire. They know every track from track one yeah. to track 10 on your album. Um, and I think that that's quite a beautiful thing because it means that they're really engaging and they're really listening. What's your experience been like of, of your S- South African audience? I mean, just from the first gig back in 2015, I could... I mean, my view of it is like they're really devoted. Yeah, I mean, you know, always when you go to a new country, you never know what to expect. Like, and going to South Africa, and I remember when we were kind of planning those gigs and they were like, yeah, yeah, they're sort of like, 
5,000 capacity. And I was like, I don't think we should do things that big. I don't like, I've never been to this place before. Like, and, and we got there and everything sold out and it was, it was amazing. And, and as you say, the response was incredible. I think actually it hit me even more when I, when I opened up for Ed, because I've opened for Ed all over the world. I've been really lucky. It's been, it's been such a massive part of, of my success is the fact that Ed's been, you know, so kind to me over the years and had me as his opening act everywhere. But South Africa was really, and I'm not just saying this, it was, it was really special and unique. I mean, like those shows in Johannesburg were like 65,000 people a night. Like I've, they're the biggest shows I've ever played in my life. And people listen, like I have goosebumps thinking about those shows. Like, and the Cape Town ones were incredible as well. The, the only reason I mentioned the Joburg ones was because they were so much bigger. Mm. But I was blown away by by the response. Like as a support act, you don't often get that. You know, in some countries, like they're so excited to see Ed. that even though they're like kind of watching, but they're also drinking beer and having a chat with their mates. And that's totally understandable. Like, you know, we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of chatting over opening acts. But man, those those four shows where it was like, yeah, such massive crowds and 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 such a level of engagement was incredible. And then to be able to come back and play, you know, um, what was it, ten ten thousand people in Joburg and, and five in Cape Town, like the ratio of people that came back from those gigs to see my headline show was just insane. Like that's, I don't think we've ever had anything like that. So I think that kind of answers the question about South African audience. I, I think there's a an amazing passion and not just that, like they saw it through. It wasn't just like, oh, cool. You're friends with Ed and you're opening up for him. I like you for this. It was like, no, when you come back, we're all coming back to see you. And, and that was a really special feeling. Yeah. So I've been obsessed with this woman's voice since I first heard Moby Dixon's Love Color Spin back in like 2015. So this interview with Msaki was the one that I was probably the most excited about. And it was also another first. And she's just so ridiculously smart and cool. And I feel like her and I could do, we could just hang out and have a few beers together and talk about life for hours on end. Oh my God, I'm actually so obsessed. <laughs> And my favorite moment was when she spoke about traveling to Bahrain to perform for the Sheikh and his family at their studio that has been graced by some of the most insane musical legends like Eric Clapton and Michael Jackson. Let's take a listen. You have to tell me about being invited by the Prince of Bahrain to perform at Two Seas Sessions, which, I mean, it, it's an acoustic event held in a studio located in the capital of Bahrain. Like, wh- I mean, when you get the email or the call or whatever it was saying that, like, the prince wants to fly you over to perform, like, what's the first thought that goes through your mind? I just, I thought it was insane. <laughs> the, the agent that they hired to call me had to repeat it a few times because I was like, excuse me, what do you, what do you mean? What's, where are you taking me? You know, like who else has gone there and come back alive? I need proof, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Oh my God. Weird. Are they taking but me there? I did like, see, I did see. <laughs> you never, you no, know. Oh, no, I, I didn't think of that at all, but I was like, which shake wants me to come and serenade him <laughs> while feeding him grapes, you know? <laughs> but but I did see a video of the King of Bahrain getting escorted by a giant robot the other day, which was really, really Oh I'm my sick. gosh, I saw that too. I saw that on Twitter and he was wearing this funny shirt. <laughs> it was, that was crazy. 
But I went and I met the most amazing, gentle people that love music. It's a family that's just crazy about music, but because of their status in society, they can't express it as, you know, as freely as other citizens. And so what they've done with their passion for music is that they've built this incredible studio, which has been visited by people like Michael Jackson frequently. There's so many like little love notes from Michael all around that studio. (laughs) Hey friends, had a great time. Thanks for having me again, you know. Eric Clapton had left his guitar there and was the last visitor before me. And I, mm-hmm. and they were like, would you like to perhaps try on Eric's guitar? And before falling over, I touched it and like, I was like, okay, fine. I'll, my, my harpist, my friend, so Sophie that I was there with, she's French. She was like, well, but you have to. <laughs> and then I, and then I played, yeah, some of my songs on Eric Clapton's guitar. So wait, 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 wait. So you played Eric Clapton's guitar in a studio in Bahrain that's basically owned by like the royal family. Pretty much. That was that was my life for a long weekend. Oh. I mean yeah. I mean you've lived. Let's yeah. just, let's just say that. And then the Prince of Bahrain made me steak and I was a vegan at the time. So I had to politely like move around the plate, you know, while this had this beautifully made steak was sitting there. Yeah. So what kind of steak was it? <laughs> One of those like really thick ones. Uh, I don't know what kind of steak that is. I'm not really... A thick cut steak, whatever. We'll just leave like it at a that. a really, really thick cut. Yeah, it looked like a brick. What like, else was on the plate apart from the steak? Oh, I don't know. It's just uh, It was like a huge buffet, but he had made the steak himself. Oh, no. So I was, I, yeah, I was like, okay, I can't say no right now. I have to try to find a way to, yeah, make it work. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's incredible. But Msaki, I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me on this pod. It's been a real honor and I've been wanting to talk to you for a very long time. And I hope that one day we can do this in person because that would be phenomenal. Amazing. Yeah, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that we could do this. I'm happy that you're home in Cape Town. Yay! Space. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much for this. And I, and I really appreciate the time and space to go a little bit deeper in some of these things it's it's quite a rare occurrence in this uh-huh. industry so thank you ah uh, it's only a pleasure
Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Text Talks. Check out texttalks.com for more episodes and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Engs and Matt Lurtz, and our research assistant, Al Clapper. Catch you on the flip side.